Hello, thank you for joining us for this podcast interview with Veronica Ehrenreich Reisner on her new book, Band to Authorities, Apartheid System of Race and Authority, published by Lexington Books. Thank you, Veronica, for joining us. Could you introduce yourself for the audience? Uh, yeah, thank you, and so much for uh, having, having me, Jordan. Yeah, the, uh, my name is Veronica Ehrenreich Reisner, as you said, and I started out uh, in the film studies program at UCLA and got my MFA there in film and taught for about 10 years. And uh, I was very interested in the research angle of films, you know. So I decided to become a librarian. So I was a, got a MLIS, uh, which is a Master of Library Information Science and became a reference librarian at the university. And, and then, uh, in about 1990, it was that uh, uh, our Buddhist paper, World Tribune, uh, came out with an article uh, and Nelson Mandela was interviewed. And that's when I became immersed in the study of South Africa in 1990. But my kids were still all in school. So I waited 10 years and just continued teaching. Uh, yeah, and for 10 years and then decided to get a PhD a doctorate in African history. And so that's why I, I went to UC uh, Santa Barbara and uh, did that and uh, completed that 2016. And my, this book, the Bantu Authorities Apartheid System of Race and Ethnicity and also Class uh, is actually a culmination of my, my dissertation, my doctoral work. Thank you. Um, so we're also joined today by Aaron McKinnon, uh, who will serve as a discussant for Veronica's research. So thank you, Aaron, for agreeing to participate in this discussion. Could you also introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you, Jordan. I'm glad to join the effort here. Um, I actually uh, got interested in South African history back uh, in the, the dark days of last century in the 1980s uh, in Canada, when the anti-apartheid movement was just burgeoning and it... Um, sort of spurred me on. So following my undergraduate degree, I, I actually traveled to South Africa and studied there at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. It was then just University of Natal um, and worked with um, a gentleman named Philip Warhurst, um, who was a super fellow and in an incredibly welcoming department that was doing some exciting stuff at the time. Um, Bill Freund was there, Paul Malam was there, Ian Phillips was there, some of the big players in African politics and history at the time. Um, and having had a splendid time with that, was really captivated by the story. I, I was working at that point on um, the land issue in Zululand and uh, focused an MA thesis on the Zululand Lands Delimitation Commission report, which Veronica is, is very familiar with and I know will come up in conversation later. Um, and then I uh, went off to London to work with, I had an opportunity to work with Shula Marx, which was um, a huge um, and, and wonderful experience, uh, you know, super mentor in so many ways. And she sort of guided me further and deeper into the story of um, what the Zulu part in the South African history um, uh, terrain was. And so that, that's kind of where I got to um, with, with the work at that point. So I'm, I'm, then I, at a later point, I met up with Veronica at a conference here in the Southeast. And I think it was in Alabama of all places. Yes, Alabama. She was giving a paper and I was like, wow, it's a pretty rare thing to have somebody not, not only 
have such a gifted insight into the story of Zululand and the Zulu history, but but to actually speak some Zulu as well and do it so nicely. And so um, we connected. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, that was the beginning of a kind of um, uh, a connection there that has carried on over the years. I'm delighted to uh, to see the book out now. Uh, great. So we can start the conversation now then. And uh, so I'm going to read the first few questions and I'll hand over to you, Aaron. Um, so Veronica, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how your academic journey brought you on to writing this book? Uh, so what, what was your inspiration? Okay, my inspiration, as I said, was uh, Nelson Mandela's release in 1990 uh, from uh, in South Africa from prison. And so what I was trying to, to find out initially was how could someone, you know, had been treated so poorly and repressed so much by, you know, the apartheid state actually be so open and, you know, reconciliation was kind of an unbelievable thought. But I decided that's what I was was interested in. And I wanted to ultimately, that was the beginning. and and I and I, I found it was basically the the reasons behind why he was able to do that by reading about him. And then then I came, what is apartheid? How did it occur? Why did it occur at that time? And, and I, I had this image of uh, what do you call a walnut <laughs> and apartheid across it. And how do you crack that walnut to see what's inside to expose it? And that's what I've been trying to do since 1990. And, and I'm hoping that, that this, this book will, will do that. So uh, can you share a quick summary of the book itself and explain a little bit about the Bantu authority system? Okay, uh, uh, should I take this one? Okay, okay. Uh, the Bantu authorities system, you know, it, it looks like a simple system, you know, based, uh, uh, it's basically the actors are the native commissioner and, and the chief and his council. But they're all under the umbrella of the department. The department was called Department of Native Affairs, DNA, uh, when 1951, the promotion, the Bantu Authorities Act uh, was passed. It, it took another eight years to become the promotion, you know, uh, into the Bantu stance. But uh, they were, uh, it was a three-tiered system that, was engineered by the department to reduce the cost of native administration. Initially in 1910, when the department amalgamated into the Department of Native Affairs, because there had been four colonies in South Africa into one, uh, the idea was centralization of all administration of African affairs under one department, one portfolio. And that took until we got to Verwood uh, 
and he became the uh, the Minister of Native Affairs and, uh, the, of the Department of Native Affairs in 1951. It took for that for the centralization to begin and and the intensification of what had been segregation under uh, more British uh, colonial rule and the idea that we can no longer uh, be doing with that assimilation or desegregation, we must have, you know, separation, apartheid. So the, the uh, initial, and I I'm, I'm, will try to make this brief, but the initial gem or germ of this Bantu authority, the system may have started, you know, in the 1850s, like Norman Etherington, if, if you read the book, it, it, you know, parses it out about the different mechanics that involving this system, which evolved, you know, over about a hundred years of, uh, you know, colonial rule. But uh, uh, the uh, ethnologist, the chief ethnologist, uh, Van Romero, uh, had penned this, this idea for the uh, native commissioners, they're, they're, I believe it was annually, I mean, they had a, a committee, they, a conference, and it was basically the bone structure of the, the you know, the uh, Bantu authorities system, which is a three-tiered system uh, based on indigenous African governance of chief in council. And just very simply, at the base, you have the tribal authority, which is the clan or quote tribe for an area in the reserves. For each one has their own. And then within that district, like uh, as, as Aaron Wall knows about M. Tumzini in Lalazi district, <laughs> uh, and they had uh, six chiefs or six ubicosis. And then that became a district and that was called a regional authority. So you have at the base territorial, I mean, uh, tribal, and then you have regional. And then at the apex, you have the territorial authority which became with self-governance, a uh, legislative assembly and was the basically the Bantustan structure. So that's, that's what the, the whole structure was, but it was seemingly innocuous, but not so at all. It was all built for a certain reason. The intent may have been under uh, colonial British rule uh, is the, you know, the missionization of African civilizing mission. When apartheid came in, and uh, there's a couple of people who really argue this. Uh, one is uh, Harold Wolpe, uh, that uh, the real intent for apartheid was the securing of uh, white capital by ensuring a supply of cheap black labor. And this is really the intent of the Bantu authority system and not so much racial uh, purity as was touted, you know, 
Everybody has to have their own ethnicity and we need racial purity. But basically this was to protect white capital. That was what apartheid was about. So, I mean, I could go on further and, you know, it's such a simple system that isn't simple at all, very deceptive. And I have gotten so many definitions of what Bantu authorities system is, but that basically just, that's the outline of it. And <laughs> so Aaron, I was gonna ask you about, uh, how do you see the, the contributions of Veronica's book to the kind of historiography and understandings of uh, apartheid and the Bantu system. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, this study is so well focused and, and I think Veronica's picked a, a wonderful location, not just because it's possibly one of the most beautiful parts of South Africa, um, ironically, but it also in, in a microcosm, you know, reflects so many of these challenges that emerged uh, in the 19th century. And her work, I think, in this book fits into a crucial space um, in which, you know, the understandings of the, the emergence of indirect rule under British colonial authority, which then gets subsumed under this more centralized, um, Afrikaner imprinted sort of national state, um, is really something that there had been a big gap in. I mean, we've seen studies, um, you know, Veronica makes reference to Ethan Evans and his um, foundational work on the nature of the bureaucratic system of the Native Affairs Department. Um, I mentioned a colleague, uh, David Duncan, I give a shout out to him, uh, his work actually on, on labor um, bureaucracy in South Africa, you know, slightly later period is also important for understanding these dynamics. But here we have a, a, a sort of grassroots level examination of the working out of the um, arguably what was considered the modernization yeah. of segregation. And some have argued, you know, in the historiography that that's really what apartheid was. It was more a modernization of the foundations of segregation that had been established by some who would call him notorious and others would call him um, a wonderful patriarch, um, but Somatsu, as he was known, um, Theophilus Shepstone, who um, cut his teeth on, you know, segregationist policies and practices within direct rule in the colony of Natal as it was back in the, the 19th century, beginning in the 1840s. And slowly but steadily through the standard classic processes, right, of imperial conquest, attrition and dismantling of the old, you know, um, African states, right? We paved the way for the instrumentality, the economic um, values that could be wrought from the people on the ground. And as Veronica points out, a lot of people have argued about the you know, economic um, instrumentality, the utilitarian nature of um, the apartheid system for ensuring repeated constant labor flows. But of course it, it flew in the face of historical realities. So Veronica then takes us from the period after the formal articulation of the Afrikaners government and apartheid through this fine tuning, right? Of this vexing set of questions. On the one hand, how do you address the problems of continued demand for cheap, exploited migrant labor? And of course, South Africa is notorious for that system. But at the same time, you're also dealing with an extremely vibrant, dynamic, and powerful African heritage and identity 
a system of culture and ethnicity, language, um, and especially the role of chiefs, which as you folks may know, are still um, major players, especially in the rural areas of South Africa. So I see this book as fitting into that crucial period, although I know she takes us all the way to you know, the democratic process, but the real magic of this book is that fine understanding of how does this get worked out at the grassroots level between the yeah. native commissioner on the one hand and the chief? And the devil is in the details, as we would say in history. So um, <laughs> that's what excited me about the work, not just because I'm a fellow traveler and I love the region and I've spent many happy days trolling the, uh, the archives and the, the, um, the Bundu bashing of the, the area, but um, certainly um, this is a crucial period of understanding for how apartheid really gets worked out through the manufacture of consent. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, and, and one of the things that I found, if I can mean piggyback on that a little bit, is the, uh, the idea of the chief, the strain that was between the chief and the commissioner. You know, the old idea of a chief and council, which was, we talked about the distortion of, of Ubukosu, the distortion of chieftaincy under apartheid. Yeah, I'm all along the line by British colonial rule, but especially by apartheid, it not only intensified it, but it brought it to a point where there was such a schism between the people, the subjects, and the chief that, that uh, in Kosi and Zuza, uh, as well as Bonzi and Zuza, actually applied, and this is very rare, for a gun permit <laughs> from the department. And he was actually given one <laughs> because he said his people are so up against this apartment, this bond to authorities. So he needs to protect himself. So, you know, you can see that each of these six, in, in Kosi, each of these six chiefs had a, a different take on what they could get from this system. You know, it's, it's not a matter of collaborator or resistor. It, it, it's, it's so much each individual, what, what serves each individual. And, and the one that, the only one that I could get a definitive, and you couldn't even call it overt resistance, but covert resistance, was uh, Nkosiem Zamela uh, because of he was jailed by the commissioner at that, who was a commissioner at that time in M. Tunzini because of his attitude on, on bond to authorities. Basically, he said, I'm not for it or against it. <laughs> and he stood his ground. And, and uh, so he got pretty, uh, you know, he lost land for that. And he had to hide in the bush sometimes because they were thinking about, uh, you know, the department was thinking about getting a different chief to replace him. Uh, but the story of, of how he went through that and how it affected his son, who I interviewed because, uh, and Kosi, his son was the one that was alive at the time and was willing to talk. And, and I found that as I talked to each of these in Kosi's, these chiefs, they had a different story. Uh, 
not there was only one of them that actually was alive during that time that was Kosi's um, Alpheus Zulu. He was the only one that was alive during that time. And you know, you say that this is a terrible system, and it was a terrible system. And of course, with this new two, 2003, not really new, because well, how many years has it been now? Uh, almost 20 years and uh, of traditional governance and leader in this framework act, which now calls tribal authorities, traditional councils and regional authorities, regional councils, and according to, you know, Mangosuru Butelezi and, and Alpha Zulu, these are all the same structures. They just gave them a new names. What's the difference? The blacks are, um, Africans are in charge, but what happens to the rural people that live in these areas, even if they're uh, South African uh, citizens and have, you know, the franchise, if they live in a rural area, under one of these traditional councils, you know, they don't have the, whether or not they can stay on a piece of land, whether or not they can have a job. Everything is impacted by this traditional council, tribal authority. And, and uh, people have been killed because they can't get rid of the, you know, a certain Induna that's headman is, is selling off land. And, and when the people don't have a, a, the ability to really input anything and stop this, violence is, is violence is, a, you know, sometimes the, the answer, uh, not the answer, but the answer that is used to get rid of somebody. And this goes back to all the way, you know, to Shaka and uh, Dingani. And uh, so what has changed, we, you know, something, I don't provide an answer, you know, uh, maybe Aaron has some answers. <laughs> this well, is beyond me, I can't answer. Well, I, 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 tell, I tell you, you know, I'm always struck by the important phrasing that, you know, people um, make their own history, but just not in the, context of their own choosing. And I think that 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 is more true for South Africa than than perhaps any other place. But Veronica, just by way of background, I was I was reminded of a couple of things. You know, you, the book discussion took me back to some of the landmark works that have set the context, uh, laid the table, as it were, for the, the work that you've done, that I've done. People like Jeff Guy, um, uh, uh, Nicholas Cope, uh, Coletzo Atkins, among others, who have, you know, sort of given us some real insights into how these things work. But I was really reminded of Jeff Guy's conjuring up of these images from none other than Winston Churchill. So you ask about, you know, the, the, the oppressive nature and the, the violent nature of things. But I, I think, you know, as Mandela said, it, was, it wasn't them who started the violence, right? So Winston Churchill called Natal Colony, you probably remember, the hooligan of the empire, right? I mean, it had risen to that level of notoriety or being so notorious as uh, the bully of empire, um, a wretched colony in which the brutality meted out against African people, especially um, those who resisted. We, we mentioned, uh, you talk a little bit about the um, Bambata rebellion, which was a watershed moment yeah. after the conquest of the Zulu kingdom, right? Yeah, 1906, yeah, yeah. But you know, there's, so there's that very um, hostile kind of uh, challenging background, but 
Tell us some more about, I, I mean, I've always been fascinated by this unique story in this area of Umtanzini about John Donne, the so-called white Zulu chief, right? Um, and, and, uh, he is the embodiment of Bantu authorities in one individual. <laughs> well, but you know, having gone back over this today, I was really struck by the incredible irony of the logic of apartheid, right? Which is all about separate development. And yet, who is the linchpin of yeah. the administration of indirect rule in this particular region? It is John Dunn. So tell us yeah. a little bit more about John Dunn and, okay. and why he's so ironic given the nature of apartheid and, and, well, and ultimately yeah. Bantu authorities. You know, John Dunn is, is, it's funny, other people have, have written on John Dunn, so I'm not really an expert on him, but the area I think I, I have covered better by I mean the actual ground. Uh, and I found that I don't personally, it, he doesn't appeal to me. So, I mean, by that I meant, I felt I was able to distance myself and, and really in, in a way historicize his role in the Bantu authorities system. See, uh, and and before you know Natal was annexed, and before when Zululand was was still independent, we had Shaka and we had Dengani, and and that was you know the way that things you know you got rid of one chief, but but uh, and then you kill him so you can become you know the king. But once, you know, like, like Aaron was saying, British colonial, uh, imperialism, colonialism, and especially, okay, just briefly, John Dunn. John Dunn was a gun runner. Now his parents were missionaries and uh, from, uh, I think it was Scotland and uh, might've been Britain. And when he was 16, he was orphaned. His father was killed by an elephant or something. And his mother was soon dead too. So he became a gun runner to support himself. And in this battle of Endicuza, and, oh, and I can't remember. And it's, it's the, the battle that was fought between Setswile and uh, his Mbulazi, which was his half-brother who were vying for the the kingdom to be, you know, Pondi's uh, heir. Uh, and Pondi was their father who was would not last all that much longer. And so uh, John Dunn fought, fought not on Sesuayo's side, uh, the Prince Sesuayo's side, but on Prince Mbalazi's side. And they lost. <laughs> And there's like 3,000 Zulus, I mean, like women and children and Zulu warriors that were killed. I mean, we talk about the Battle of Blood, you know, River and Woma. And this was basically, you know, much like that. And what is kind of really truly amazing is what Setswayo takes from this, oh, I can use this guy, this John Dunn. And he starts using him as a, like an interlocutor between the British and he becomes trusted. And when, when uh, 
he was uh, imprisoned later by the British at the castle. Siswile said that he only ceded, C-E-D-E-D, -E -E the land, you know, to John Dunn. He didn't give it to him. He, see, he said, I, I don't even own the land. But that's not the British. They don't look at things that way. People own it. So anyway, uh, John Dunn was ceded this territory, which went all the way to Ishwai and, and to the uh, Indian River and was the luscious, best land for growing sugarcane and gum trees. And, and well, he took, go ahead. No, yeah, let me jump in there because I think, <laughs> you know, the, one of the, your, your central argument, right, in the book, the theme is, you know, the Bantu authorities are, are instrumental. And, and we could talk more in, in a little bit, perhaps, about the idea of manufacturing consent and the question of agency, yeah. and, you know, willing collaborators and, and that very, you know, nuanced kind of uh, dance that is being done, um, you know, through the 20s, 30s, 50s, all the way through. But let's talk a little bit then about the land issue, because, I mean, partly... I'm, I'm going to privilege my own voice in that story, right? Because, you know, I, I did. Please do, Aaron. <laughs> right, sure. That's um, crazy. After the Anglo-Zulu War, there was a period of um, uh, a sort of moratorium on penetration and further, um, you know, dismantling of the old Zulu kingdom. But, um, you know, the, the, the Natal settlers, right, were anxious. Uh, their teeth were sharp and they wanted to cut them on cane. Um, and that was going to be the, the liquid gold, right, that, that was going to um, build their fortunes. And they, they salivated desperately over getting access to the coastal areas of Zululand. So in comes this um, commission. It's a fascinating story, but it's a joint yeah. imperial colonial commission. And they're the ones who, and this is interesting because it's before yeah. the landmark legislation, which everybody points to as really the cornerstone of what becomes apartheid, right? The 1913 Natives Land Act. Yeah. Before, you know, the union government dismantles the land and preserves over 80% of it for white only use and occupation and property ownership and relegates over 80% of the population, right, all of the Africans into the reserves, comes this Lands Delimitation Commission, which divides up the land and says, we're throwing this open for white settlers. I mean, it was like boomtown, right? It was like a land rush. Um, to give these folks opportunity. And of course, there are so many machinations and politics behind the big sugar barons of Natal who wanted to go in. But tell us more then about, because you mentioned this, right, the ongoing role of the chiefs in allocation of land and this peculiar legal jurisdictional twilight that they inhabit in which they control the allocation of land, but they cannot alienate it, cannot yeah. sell it. They can't. So Zululand gets divided up like a checkerboard some of the best land gets thrown open to these um, white sugar barons who come in. How does that have an impact on your story in which you talk about the instrumentality of the apartheid system to funnel labor into industrial gold and diamond mining in the urban areas? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, it just kind of go forward, backward. Uh, you, you look at, you know, when they tried to consolidate the Bantu stones, they weren't able to. <laughs> and why? Because they were divided by all these, you know, white sugar barons and, and, uh, and gum trees. And so 
what they did was they, they gave a certain amount of land, usually not the best land, but, you know, did come to Amtunzini, had some good land, uh, Amtunzini district. And so they had six chiefs and each of these chiefs was allotted, according to the Bantu authority system, uh, a certain boundary, which had been drawn way back in, in 1905. The Zululand Land Delimitation Commission way back then and and uh, kind of tightened. And within that, if somebody say you came in and you wanted to have an, a piece you know, of that land to build on, you would have to go and you still do today have to go to the council and ask them for permission. And it's up to the chief and you have to prove that you're going to work the land and if you know you don't work the land you stop working the land it's taken away from you if like happened to this lady i interviewed uh, whose father uh, had a, it was usually a 10 acre you know uh sugar lot sugarcane lot that they were allotted uh to work the land her father had suffering from dementia so she is handling this whole 10 acres actually by herself and she needed to get a loan and because she was a woman she couldn't get a loan and so she had to go to the chief who has all the control who has to sign off on this in order to be able to get a loan uh and this is the way the whole system has been set up it's always against women but it was you know it's against, you know, the like he was talking, Aaron was talking about alienating land. You cannot sell this land to, well, now maybe you can, but you couldn't sell this land to anyone other than another African. And, and so that's how it was supposedly protected. It was like reverse, you know, you can't come into our area, but we can't come into your area. But hey, the mineral, any mineral rights belong to us, the department, and not, not to you. <laughs> so so uh, anyway, I don't, I don't know. I maybe went off on a tangent there, uh, Aaron. Did well, let's, let's circle back, though, because I think, you know, yeah, the chiefs continue. And maybe, you know, later we can come back because I'm, I'm fascinated by um, some of your insights into um, Chief um, Butelezi, Mangasutu Butelezi. Yeah, um, yeah. Gotcha, which is probably a term you 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 haven't used much, but um, it, well, you know, I it mean, was... He, he was one one. Uh, they uh, if you use that term, and I understand whether or not this is true. When you join the in Freedom Party IFP, you had to take a vow that you would never never <laughs> never use that. As gotcha. Absolutely, <laughs> but well, we'll come back to Butelezi, who's a fascinating character, and I think arguably probably the single figure which represents yeah. right so many of the, oh, the outcomes yeah. the trajectories that you lay out in the book yeah. Yeah. but you know let's go back to this land question because i mean zululand was um among the most um holistically integrated um uh, you know unified kingdoms in the region um it had withstood some pretty mighty blows over time it still carried a, a, a pretty f phenomenal weight not so much in its um, territorial integrity, as we as we've seen, because it was dismantled. But um, the heritage of um, its uh, identity as a yeah. as a powerful kingdom, as an African kingdom, 
as a stalwart bulwark against the intrusions, right, um, of uh, the settler forces. And yet, you know, the other side of the story and the, the, the real insidious nature of BA, as you point out, right, is this um, dismantling of the territorial integrity, which undermined the rural economy. And that was uh, a calculated and very well gauged effort over time, right? Especially the, 19... the kinglets, the 13 kinglets. But even more so, the penetration of, of white settlers into the area without further investment, right? It was very much um, the kind of colonial economy, monocrop agriculture, um, very little industry and job opportunities provided for Africans in the rural areas. And this was, as you point out, right? This is the stimulus, this is the driver. I mean, in fact, this is the yeah. lash that compels these rural folks into the urban environment to work uh, at highly exploited wages um, in the migrant labor environment without the ability to reproduce their own family homesteads and so on, right? So talk a little bit more about the impact that that had in, in the areas and, and how that left so few choices. By the time Bantu authorities gets promulgated, right? And the, the, the centralized authorities in Pretoria come in and say, you know, whether you accept this by consent or not, it's happening. Yeah. The underlying driver is that there's no material viability in the reserves. Certainly my argument in my doctoral dissertation was by the 1930s, it's pretty well over. Yeah. Yeah. The depression, the decimation of uh, economic viability, market fluctuations, the lack of, of capital investment for African peasant producers, they're done. So how does BA kind of articulate, as it were, with that labor regime by the okay. 1950s? Yeah, well, before BA, or actually before the National Party came into power, you know, you had to have a pass to go into uh, Durban or whatever city, big city you wanted to. Uh, and after after that, what, what happened was the apartheid, they wanted to get this, be able to get this rate of labor ratio where you have surplus and needed labor. So the surplus could all go back to the reserves and we only had the labor that we really needed uh, that were usually young men or men below the age of 40 in, in the urban areas to, to work the mines and to work the uh, to manufacturing. And, and so the big issue had always become then, how many are we going to keep how many Africans are we going to allow as visitors to meet the needs of white labor in the uh, in the urban area? Because we don't want to be overrun by the, you know, they had all these names uh, for the Africans. Uh, but, you know, like, I mean, depending on where you go, you know, so I've heard it's five to one ratio at that time or seven to one ratio of African to, to whites and or Europeans. So the idea of, of land, it became a reality, especially after the 1954 report that, hey, we need to have a place to house 
our labor and so we can have a production of the migrant labor force that has to be in the reserves. So that is the Bantu authority system set up this system of rule apartheid. So all the surplus labor could be put there and, and they could produce the next generation of migrant labor. And only the migrant labor that were able were then, you know, could migrate to the, uh, to the urban areas. Uh, and I, I think the main thing too, is that there was a commission by Herbst, which who was secretary of native affairs in the, uh, 1930s, I think it was, but I was at UCT when I read his, all his collection of papers. And this whole commission where they interviewed everybody, because what happened is with uh, this land, we realized we need this land, we want this land for sugar, whites want this land for sugar or for gum trees. But we also need to use this land as reserve minimum amount necessary to house the next generation of migrant laborers, you know, so we can have repro reproduction. And, and in this meantime, where they're uh, favoriting uh, the uh, mines and, and industrial, the department is favoring them, that labor force. We're forgetting about the farms and the farms, uh, the, you know, white farms in, in the rural areas threw up a fit and this is what caused this commission. And, and actually, they uh, because of this, uh, lots of things changed and uh, the focus became, well, I don't know if I'm answering your question. No, well, it's, yeah, no, I think, I think it, it, does, it does address a lot of us. But, you know, as we move ahead and, and with the time remaining, maybe yeah. we, we should turn to, I think, what is the, arguably the other really important dimension of the, the work here, and that is getting a sense of, of um, I mean, you, you follow the argument that Ivan Evans came along with, which is that, um, you know, this um, kind of approach of, of manufacturing consent, of trying yeah. to co-opt and connect with African people, and pay some deference to questions of heritage and uh, the authenticity of their lived experiences is crucial for the way these systems operate. And, it, and it's true, you know, increasingly as we look around the world at authoritarian regimes and we look at the importance they place on the performative art, right, of, of co-option. Um, I mean, you know, lessons certainly can be learned from the South African case and especially this case in Zululand, I think. So let's turn to this idea associated with the, you know, the, the legitimacy question and the foundations of Bantu authority um, on the foundation of the chiefs. Uh, yeah. Why the chiefs, right? Um, I mean, you know, the ANC government um, wants a centralized state. They want complete uh, management and control. That's a different sort of approach than this deferential you know, reference to the, the systems of what, what you and I know of Lonipa, right? The decorum of yeah, yeah. patriarchy. Yeah. Lonipa. So there's, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so, so there's that dimension. Tell us a little bit about why the question of consent of the chiefs is so important. And then maybe we'll have time to just- Okay, okay. Just really, really briefly, I'll try it. Is the idea of getting 
consent from the chiefs means to the international community who was up in arms about apartheid policies that actually the Africans bought into this system. And that is why that might take on why they asked and they put in the Bantu Authorities Act, the 1951 Bantu, that it was required to then to go to consult that the uh, the commission would have to go to consult the the different uh, chiefs and their clans and get and and there was parts that said actual consent were required. So why did they shoot themselves in the foot? I mean, the department. And the reason they did that was because, you know, here we got, you know, the, uh, the international community of the United Nations had sent out a memo. Uh, you know, there were, people didn't, didn't want to, to deal with uh, South Africa and this apartheid anymore. And, and you get something like the face of Bravud, who was, of course, extended. Uh, not exterminated, assassinated, second go round successfully in 1966. But up, up to that time, any you watch any of the videos, they, they say apartheid is right. So you need to get the idea that in 1960, it became the year of independence of Africa. So all these African nations, and I think Ghana was 1958, that became independent from Britain. And, and so you needed to, to have some answer to the Africans, especially after coming back from World War II. Uh, how are you gonna fit into this? How do you get? So the idea was that we're gonna give you back some of your land and we're gonna make your chiefs more powerful. You can have your own ethnicity. So while all these people on the rest of the African continent is going off for African nationalism, and of course the ANC, the ICU and, and uh, other parties, the South African Communist Party, we're also going off onto this. We're going to say, you don't need that. We're going to give you your own space so you can develop as your own people under your own ethnicity. And so your culture. Well, and, and in fact, that leads us to perhaps a, a good wrap up here as, as time, I think, is, is, is winding you. down. Um, and that is, you know, this sort of perhaps unintended, but nevertheless powerful outcome. I mean, in some ways, yeah, yeah. though we may judge him, um, you know, Butelezi was the survivor of the Zuma Yeah, Kingdom. oh boy, he right? is a sharp man. Well, so let's let's talk a little bit about the, the legacy that he, um, you know, inherited this um, uh, sort of uh, continuation of um, the power and authority, the majesty, the prestige of yeah. the Zulu kingdom, right? The yeah. continuities of that. It certainly, I mean, many have argued that, you know, um, Boudelaisi is the enfant terrible of, of um, you know, post-apartheid politics because of how he's being a spoiler for the ANC. But the Ingonyama Trust, um, the Zulu royal family, the heritage and the role of the chiefs arguably are strongest in this area um, and have defied the logic of the corruption of BA. So maybe speak a little bit about that as, as we wind things down. Okay, uh, I, Budalezi is a fascinating, brilliant man. I, I met with him twice. I don't agree with his politics, but you know, <laughs> he, he's a man that you have to deal with if you want to get anything done. And he has a lot of authority. And even though he no longer is uh, head of the IFP, he, he has a lot of uh, respect 
and a lot of people come to him when they when they need something. All you had to do was see when the, the new Zulu king after uh, Goodwill's Zulatini passed to, you know, how, who they bring in? Mangosutu Bujalensi. And, and, and he had from the very beginning, which in the beginning in this book, the first picture, and I, when you see, and he comes into the limelight is in this Nangoma uh, meeting where Vervu called all the, all the 300 uh, main chiefs and to push Bantu authorities. And he gave the idea that, hey, well, we're not saying we're for it or against it. We just want to see how it operates in other areas. So give us some time. So this was his thing that he went on to. He was able to avoid this for like 20, 20 years, as was Amazamilla. And uh, I'm, I, you know, I, I think, Aaron, I went off the target there. <laughs> well, just, you know, the extraordinary you know, dimensions, I think the, the, the paradoxical effect of, of BA, right? We, we see this as, you know, having been corrupting um, it manufactured consent, it appointed chiefs, um, uh, you know, um, so I, I think that, you know, as you point out, his continued legacy uh, is, is, is a remarkable testament to their resilience, even in the context of BA. But uh, yeah. I think as, as time winds down, Veronica, I want to thank you for oh, thank um, you, allowing Aaron. me to kibitz And thank you, Jordan. <laughs> for for, for uh, the, the book, and we look forward to more conversations about it. Jordan? And and, and on uh, June 22nd at the Vitz uh, History Workshop, Aaron and I and Norman Etherington and perhaps a few other people will be discussing the book launch. So hope you can join us then too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Aaron. Bye, Bye Jordan. Uh, so I'm just going to say a quick conclusion here as well. So uh, thank you, Veronica, and thank you, Aaron, for joining us for this podcast interview. Uh, I hope it has been an opportunity to reflect upon each of your works and experiences in South African history. For our listeners, we hope that this conversation has stimulated interest in South African as well as global history. We hope it helps to contribute towards an increased understanding of human activity across the world and how it has impacted local lives. Thank you very much. Thank you.